0: You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. This Sunday we have someone coming that is uh, not a guest speaker because he's a part of this church family. Um, if you were able to grab a worship guide, you'll see on page five his bio, I want to read a little bit of that, um, but I want to make sure that you all know the work and ministry of Reverend Dr. Lloyd S. Wicker um, Reverend Dr. Lloyd, who likes to be called Reverend Dr. Lloyd. You're killing me, um, Fred. You're killing me. I know, but that's why I have, to, look, why does he have his mic hot right now? I'm supposed to be able to do, to you do keep this, this mic his hot mic right should now. should not be hot right now. Um, so the Reverend Dr. Lloyd, uh, grew up in Chino, California, uh, was raised by parents, uh, to know and love Jesus, attended Trinity Christian College in Palos uh, Heights, Illinois, where he graduated with a bachelor's degree in psychology and church education, met his wife Heidi, who he married in 1998. After serving a few years as a youth pastor, he continued his seminary education, earning his Master of Divinity in 2003 and Doctor of Ministry in 2016. He and I joke because we had. A couple of sad, we had one of the same, um, we had the same, one of our professors were the same in our doctoral program. We
1: share PTSD. We do share guy. PTSD because of yes, that lovely do. professor
0: who I'm certain does not catch this recording. So let's hope he does not. Um, he has served as an ordained minister for 21 years. Lloyd served in a variety of staff and pastoral roles at churches in Illinois, Michigan, Washington, and California before accepting a commission to serve as an officer and chaplain in the United States Navy in 2014. Since then, he has served on five continents and in 22 countries as chaplain to Marines, sailors, and Coast Guardsmen around the world. He and his family have served overseas in Italy and Japan, which have included his service in chapels on ships and with operational forces deployed overseas. His present duty is at the U.S. Coast Guard Training Center, Yorktown, where students train for their specific jobs in the Coast Guard. Lloyd and Heidi and family have been part of WCC since fall of 22. Their oldest, Annika, is a sophomore at Trinity Christian College in Illinois, Andrew, who's a senior, and Cat, who's a sophomore student at Lafayette High School. Lloyd's Calling Church, which in his world is considered a supervisory church, is Cross Point Church in Chino, California, but they have been glad to call WCC uh, their local church home. So I'm going to ask Reverend Dr. Mm-hmm. Lloyd to come up. Everybody, welcome him. <clears throat> if he's on good behavior, he's called the right reverend, Dr. <laughs> Lloyd. So usually it's just reverend. Um, Dr. Lloyd. Had somebody once say, you're too irreverent to be called Reverend Fred. I was like, you're right. Not everybody can be a reverend.
1: Uh, was part of my angst with the title sometimes, right? I, I so. know, I know, right?
0: Um, so, Reverend Doctor. Hmm. Uh, so, really, tell, tell us what, uh, let's just get into this. What led you? into congregational ministry you did that for quite a while and then share with us what led you out
1: yeah so you know I, i i grew up in a in a christian home as you had mentioned earlier and product of a christian school and had great christian teachers and great christian youth leaders that i think um you know as they came into high school saw things in me that i didn't see in me and really encouraged me to keep that door open for ministry in some way shape or form i might give you names of teachers. They leave that kind of impression on you, right? I thought they were crazy. So I graduated and went to college for nursing, which lasted a semester. (laughs) Because uh, come to find out that New Testament Greek and anatomy and physiology cannot be taken in the same semester without losing something. And in my case, it was my mind. So, so, you know, the writing was on the wall, and, and that's okay. So shifted to psychology, church education. Had a chaplain at college that opened the door wide for me to become a youth pastor at the church that he ended up going to pastor um, before I graduated, and uh, and loved my little world of youth ministry. I did. It was great uh, congregation. I felt comfortable with, if you will, uh, and uh, had had folks in that church that kept encouraging me too to not stop, keep going. Um, you need to go to seminary. So wrestled with that and uh, and and finally moved. Uh, Heidi and I moved to to Michigan where I went to seminary and um, found myself called to a church in Washington state where I could serve as a, as an associate pastor, which is the fancy title for doing everything the senior pastor doesn't want to do, which is why we don't have that title here. Yeah. Yeah. So I I did that for a while and really enjoyed it, but also found a love for preaching that um, nobody was more surprised than me Um, because as I said earlier, standing in front of people um, I, too, will go home after this and probably sleep all afternoon um, because I'm an introvert. Now you won't notice that for a little while here, but, yeah, the energy is straining, right? So it's not your fault. It's me. Um, but uh, that led me to a, 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 I guess, solo pastor kind of church. There was, there was really nobody uh, else on staff uh, to Central California. Where I I pastored for, my goodness, how many years was it? 2008 to 2014. Um, That's also where I learned a lot about me. Uh, Namely, uh, in the form of clinical depression and medication and counseling and realizing that while some of that was probably in, in me, I also realized that, and hear me well on this, we love you, but pastoring some churches is hard. I don't know if you realize this, but there's studies out there, like three out of four pastors are on antidepressants, right? Why? I don't know. But I, I will tell you that in that place, um, I got to a point where I took my ministry credentials, if you will, uh, put them in an envelope, sent them to my denomination and said, I know I can't quit, so get me out. And thankfully, uh, I had a wonderful mentor, uh, who became a mentor, I should say, who uh, who had been given that document and said, uh, "We'll talk about this when you're of sound mind to make this decision." Because I don't think you are right now, and that and that's where that's where the depression thing I think came to. Uh, I mean, it was it was brewing for a long time, but that's where it was not able to be concealed anymore, right? right? Um, and and realized that I could not, uh, I could not leave that church in the way that a lot of my predecessors did. I needed to be well first. I didn't want to be run out. So I waited and started looking into other types of ministry because while I never felt called out of ministry, I certainly realized through, through work that I was doing with cops and firemen and in hospitals uh, with chaplaincy that that was life-giving. And that was still absolutely ministry. But pastoring a church at the time I'm not sure I'll go back, but right now I'm really happy where I'm at in a war fighting institution. <laughs> I hate to say it that way, but um, but yeah, it's it, there's there's a different kind of ministry there, and um, I love what I get to do. But it was a hard it was a hard road. You said to me
0: that there is you found more grace in a war fighting institution than you did, Pastor Mitchell.
1: <sighs> yeah, that's it, that's true. Yeah. I did, I did. Um, there there is a. <laughs> There is almost a church-like community in the military. And if you've been in it, you know. And if you haven't, you probably think I'm talking crazy talk. But there, there is a community there that, that just catches you. And, um, yeah, it's been so, amazing.
0: So you've, you've, we found out it, after post-COVID that about, uh, I know in society we call it the great resignation, but in the church yeah. world we called it the great resignation as well because many pastors left ministry, church ministry after COVID. Because all the conspiracy theory and political ideology, and just the challenges of navigating that season, uh, many churches even closed down. Yep, uh, and I have friends who have walked away from pastoral work for you know various reasons. Um, and so you walk out of that and into something else, into mm. ministry, uh, the ministry of chaplaincy among the armed forces. Yep. Um, what led you there and what's involved in that ministry? Give us an imagination. Yeah, for this so ministry. what
1: led me there was basically a guy who had been prior enlisted as a Marine and then became a chaplain and then retired. And he was a Methodist pastor in town. And he said, he saw in me joy in the chaplaincy piece and not so much in the pastoral piece. And so how did I land in the armed forces? That's how. Um, it was somebody who caught me at a certain time in my life and said, "You should look this way," and I did. So, was your
0: church surprised when you? Left? Oh my
1: goodness! Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so look, I was the pastor that, um, and maybe this feeds into why some of them were ready to run me uh, out on my tail. Um, but I was the pastor who basically said, "No, you are not putting a flag in the sanctuary. Sorry, you can put it outside, but we're not going to mix we're not going to mix up Christian nationalism with worship." Amen. And. Um, so when I stood they had me pegged then as the most anti-patriotic America-Haitian person that's you could possibly imagine, right? That's never happened to so, me.
0: That's never. I know nothing about that at all. So you've
1: got to imagine, like, the near myocardial infarctions that happened. Fancy word for heart attack, right? <laughs>
0: nursing school. That's, One that's how semester, nursing school pays right? its benefit.
1: You've got to imagine the shock on their faces when I said in front of the congregation that I accepted a commission to the United States Navy as a chaplain. <laughs> right? So... Um, but listen, I I didn't join because, um, because I'm super patriotic. Um, I didn't join because I wanted to be part of a war fighting institution. Um, chaplains are non combatants, if you don't know that, which means that we go into harm's way without a weapon. And and there's like a Geneva Convention that says we cannot do that. That's not even an option, right? So yeah, I, I really. Uh, I really hate war, right. and when I stand in front of military ceremonies and pray for peace, I know it, it, it grates at some people who train for that and, and think, because they don't know any better, right, that they want to do that, but, um, but yeah, I pray for peace, and in front of them too. By the way, chaplains do get to pray in Jesus' name, so if someone comes fundraising trying to, you know, earn a fight to preserve that. You're wasting your money, right? <laughs> I got no problem praying in Jesus' name in uniform, and no chaplain does. So, um, it
0: protects religion. It does. It religion protects religion
1: as a whole. And so, when I when I get to serve in that capacity, uh, you know, I serve as a Christian minister. I don't have to conceal that. Um, I don't have to dance around that. Although I'll tell you, it is a job that that's filled. It's filled with conflict, right? Right. Um, because intentions because the other thing that I that I get to do that not every pastor could do is make sure I advocate for people of faith that have nothing to do with mine that's right right so when my Muslims want to celebrate Ramadan I'm the guy who goes to the mat to the to the dining hall and says, we need to accommodate this yeah right and pick your faith because there's all kinds of others I could throw in there too but it's 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 the freedom. It's, the military is not a religious organization, right? So it's it's people's freedom to practice their faith, whatever it is, and it's the chaplain's privilege to help facilitate that. And I'll tell you that I have found by respecting people where they're at, um, I have had more conversations about Christ than I would have if I came with a big Bible. That's right, <laughs> right? That's or right? Something. So, so you're um, living
0: in an environment. I mean, obviously. Christ as the peacemaking prince of peace, you find mm-hmm. yourself in this war institution, you find yourself as a Christian pastor in a place of religious, what we, you know, I mean, I didn't even say pluralism. You live okay. in a whole myriad of tensions yes. and nuances. You have to learn to hold those yes. and hold those well. Because in the midst of that, one of the things I appreciate most about your ministry, other than just you, bro, um, is that like you're stepping into the hard parts of suffering. You're stepping right into sometimes literal minefields
1: but (laughs) very much uh, emotional emotional and spiritual ones as well.
0: Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, chaplains have, chaplain, military chaplains, I think, have a privilege that nobody else has in uniform, and that is absolute confidentiality. And so whether someone's religious or not, they know they can always come talk to their chaplain. And when I say absolute, I really do mean absolute. I playfully tell students to make sure they understand what that word absolute means, that you could literally tell me you have bodies in your trunk, and I can't report that. Thankfully, that's never happened, by the way, <laughs> just to be clear. But but that confidentiality is a gift, right? And so people, religious or not, will come to their chaplain, and they'll, and they'll talk to us about all kinds of things going on in their life. And I'll always ask them if they're religious, because you know I always think about the two toolboxes I get, with both with helping skills, and one, no religion required, but one, specialized tools. Man, I love those tools, and they work so well, but but there has to be some kind of religious faith behind it, right? right? But those opportunities, meeting people in that kind of trauma and holding people in that kind of confidence, walking with them in that kind of confidence, I mean, it, it, it gives you a right to speak into their life. You know, for, I'll, argue, I'll argue with any Christian who says no Christian should be serving in the military because I'll tell you what, God just opened a door wide open for pastors to come and talk to people who are in vulnerable parts of their life where else do you get that? I mean, it's 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 an incredible privilege to walk into those spaces and not be gagged, not be told I can't say certain things, but, but, but to be the pastor, to be the reflection of Christ in that trauma, in that space.
0: Like in that space, you get to <sighs> preach this kind of ungarnered truth. You get to, and I don't mean preach as in like from a pulpit, even though you do that on Sundays too. I do. But you, um, and that's important to know because we are going to start praying for that, but
1: yeah, you I know, walk in late at this service because I'm coming hot from yeah. the service I just finished. Just yeah. so you know,
0: so. he's so Reverend Doctor that he does yeah. two gatherings, yeah. a Sunday. Yeah. That's how Reverend Doctor he is. Um, but like you, you come into this. Yeah, I'm going to get you in. The I sermon, know you will. Fred, oh, that's right. You're so. preaching afterwards. Ah,
1: yeah, yeah. He'll kill turn the, his mic off. Kill right? the board.
0: Kill the board. Um, you, you know, I, may people don't, may not know this, but when we lived in Columbus, Georgia, on Fort Benning, I was. Um, for several months, I was an assistant to the chaplain there for the Protestant services. And it was right around the time 9-11 had hit. And all these young men who had joined the army, they were in jump school, ranger school. Um, now it was, it was about to happen. The unimaginable had happened and the unimaginable will continue to happen. And we were baptizing 200, 250, 300 young men um, a Sunday, uh, like, a, like an assembly line. And I remember listening to some of them and And one of the things that in in the world of trauma studies, we have a category called moral injury, and it's particularly came through soldiers. It came through dealing with the trauma of of men and women who had gone to war. And it was the idea that while there things happened, orders came down, they did what they had to do, come back, and there's like a moral injury, an internal injury within their own moral consciousness of having to live with some of the consequences and choices that were made uh, in those hard uh, death-dealing spaces. And chaplains are right there on the front line. Helping uh, these men and women process these things. Incarnational ministry. It is. It is. We live with them. It is. Be with them. It is stepping into that place. What would you want uh, after this? Now, if you offer a word to us on transfiguration, that is a beautiful word, by the way. We heard it first. What would you want your church family to know about your ministry?
1: Yeah. So um, it's it's really. Less about the what. I think I've had a chance to share with you some of what the what is, and hopefully you have a feel for that. But ask questions if you have them. I'm happy to talk to you more about it. Um, and we need more chaplains, so it's a great ministry to be part of. But maybe, maybe it's you know more the what to pray for, right? And and I'll, I'll i I thought about the question ahead of time, so I, I do have a couple of notes on that. And and it's really around three things, if I could ask. You know, missionaries often will will they be dependent on churches for funding and that kind of thing, and they'll there'll be offerings for, for missionaries. I will never ask for your money. You pay your taxes. Thank you. Right. I get paid. Um, but I'll ask you for more. I'll ask you for prayer and I'll ask you to not forget because a lot of times missionaries, you know, out of sight, out of mind. Now we're here, right? This is our local church home, but, um, but, but prayer and around three things specifically. One, um, and the way I'll say it is my people. Pray for the people that I'm serving with and that I'm serving, right? Because a lot of them, so some of them come from really deep faith, which is awesome. You know, those, those are fun conversations to get to have. Some of them um, I would put in the category of nuns and duns. So in other words, they'll be asked what their religious tradition is, and they'll check the box. Nun, there's not a done box, but what that means is I was religious once and I'm done. And I'm not doing that anymore. Um, and that's a lot. There's a lot of people who have been hurt by the church. Um, and I get to come alongside them too. Um, and Then I would also say that there's a handful of folks that just come from a, a place of great brokenness and uncertainty. There's people who join because mom or dad was in the military. There's people who join because it's an alternative to homelessness. There's people who join because they're getting away from a very toxic home or community environment. There's a lot of reasons why people have to join right? And, um, and just, you know, join me in praying for them and that opportunities would come to help, help share the hope of Christ, right? Because I look for those doors to crack open. And when they crack, oh boy, do I walk through, right? But I, I look for those invitations. Um, a second thing I think would be praying for new opportunities. I come into a place um, where even well before COVID, it seems like a lot of religious ministries, things just stopped. And so we've been rebuilding. And I'm in a state of perpetual church planting. It's a training command, right? And so think college ministry, but think college ministry where people are only there between six and 14 weeks, and then they're gone, right? And so it's constantly rebuilding, constantly rebuilding. Um, but we, we have a good little congregation that worships on Sunday mornings at 845, um, about 27, 28 or so people. So... Um, and then I think the last thing that I would ask for prayer for is really more of a personal one. You know, it seems seems like there's been lots of different ministry opportunities in my life, and hardship t- t- tends to await. <laughs> um, and um, here, here it's a lot of some, some really more personal health stuff. So I, I do have a vestibular disorder or disease that um, it's fairly well fairly new. I've I've been struggling with it for probably five years. It hasn't been diagnosed for that long, but. Um, at some point it's going to take me out of this military position. It's not going to kill me. So when I say take me out, I don't mean die early, right? I should have said that in the first service too. You
0: made that about as grim as it could be. No, no, no. I don't mean that Had people going, what do we need to do for him? But it is the
1: kind of incompatibility thing, right? It's like it won't work for military service. And so, um, and it's progressive. Um, And I know that. So I I just, I'm I'm praying, I'm praying that it, it stays not any worse than it is. Yeah or even better, that it would get better, right? right, right. Which would be nothing less than a miracle um, that I'd be very grateful for. Um, but but also the grace to know that, you know, even in that, you know, God God leads us and guides us and directs us. And so, but right now, I mean, it's a disease that tends to come when people are at the height of their career. And sure enough, I'm 49 years old and loving what I'm doing right about a halfway point in my, uh, in my time in the Navy, but... It is a battle, and it gets in your head sometimes. So uh, on the occasional Sundays when you see me stumbling to wake, make my way up here, it's because my world's turning about 1,000 RPMs, right? And uh, it, it, look, it looks like a drunk walk, yeah. but it's not, right. it's not intoxication. <laughs> so, um, well, one of the reasons
0: why I felt life was important For Lloyd to share this, I'm sorry, for Reverend Dr. Lloyd to share this with us. Um, For one, he's a part of this church family. For two, it's a ministry. For three, it's a ministry in the midst of suffering. For four, Mm -hmm. he's a peacemaking son of God in a war-making world, and he's entered into the places where Christ is also found. Mm -hmm. And for five, many times we pray that God protect the men and women in uniform, and that is a fine prayer, but we need to also pray that God heal the men and women in uniform Mm -hmm. because God is using... God's sons and daughters to do that. And, and we'll find that maybe some of the bullets and bombs will cease when the healing actually takes place mm-hmm. and shalom flourishes, right? When human flourishing happens. And so it's important to see that Christ is underneath all of the rubble of the bullets and bombs. And both the oppressed and the oppressor can be liberated from the gospel just in entirely different ways. And we need people like Lloyd in those spaces proclaiming that kind of good news of new possibilities in a world that is committed to its violence and power. And I'm just grateful for his heart. He's a good man, and I appreciate his thoughtfulness. And on that note, why don't you offer us a word on transfiguration? All
1: right. We can do that. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you for the invitation to get to do this. So, And I, I really mean that. This is an incredible honor for me. Um, I love sitting down there and listening to Fred especially a guy who preaches every week. It's nice to also be fed once in a while. So um, outside of the sermon work, that is. Uh, but this, this is an incredible honor. So um, if you were here last week, then you, like me, probably uh, probably witnessed uh, a rare thing, maybe even a miracle, some would <laughs> say, right? I think it was Fred's shortest sermon in the last year and a half. <laughs> right? The last year and a half. But as as I was listening to it, it I, I should also say I, I love it, Fred. The beauty, the beautiful thing about listening to you preach is that time can go by, and when it ends, I look at my clock and I can't believe how much you know time has passed. It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel that long at all. So, um, but as as I was listening, listening to it last week, it struck me that uh, one of those amazing God moments, right? That that that. Fred talked about how he was working on another sermon leading up to that, and it wasn't working. It just wasn't coming together. And, and, and that happens sometimes, right? It evokes usually a lot of panic in people like me anyway. I don't know how it does for you, Fred, but um, especially when it's Saturday night and you still don't have anything, right? Um, but, but God does that sometimes, and God redirected Fred to a different theme in a different text where he talked about God speaking in the wilderness. Do you remember and there was a Hebrew word he taught us. Anybody know what it is? Midbar, yeah. Well, you all remember. Midbar. And so you may recall some of the things that he talked about, how in the wilderness everything stripped away, all those things that bring comfort, all those things that bring security stripped away, out of reach. The people who and the places that, where we find trust and comfort and security no longer there to give us comfort, no longer to bring us security. And so I was listening to Fred a bit last week, and I was wondering if this was the introduction to this week's sermon or if I'd be changing my text, right? Um, come to find out that, uh, that I, think it, I think this is a two-part series that we didn't talk about ahead of time, um, and yet it's, it's working out really, really nicely. Um, I love it when God does that, right? Mark 9, there's a story um, about Jesus that also appears in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. Um, which, you know, all the stories of Jesus and all the Gospels are important, but when you see it recorded three times, right, that should get your attention a little bit. So, um, and it's called the Transfiguration, and it just so happens to be, and we've been talking about it this morning already, right, this is Transfiguration Sunday. Um, it is uh, typically the Sunday just before the season of Lent, right? Um, and, I, and Transfiguration Sunday, I think, sends us to a text that sets the stage for our life together through the season of Lent and leading up to Easter. But before I even go there this morning, I, I, I want to call attention to something that's really important about the Gospel of Mark. And I, I'm sorry, I don't have slides up, So you, and there's probably nothing in the Church Center app, but I bet you have apps on your phone with the Bible, right? Or maybe you have a Bible with you. Uh, Mark chapter 9 is eventually where we're going to go. But, but before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about Mark chapter 8, right? Because... Um, Because there's really something important that happens in Mark's gospel at this point. And it happens toward the the end in Mark chapter 8, verse 27. It begins there. It says, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. And then verse 29. But you... He said, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. Friends, everything that happens in Mark's gospel up to this point leads to this declaration. And everything that happens out of it flows from that declaration. It is the hinge for this gospel. To acknowledge Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, is to make a correct judgment. We know, right, about who he is. And in the text we'll look at today in chapter 9, Peter's confession is confirmed. And what he affirmed by faith would be soon verified in this event called the transfiguration, where his divine glory would be very visible, would be very seen. And no sooner did Peter make this confession than still back in chapter 8. Sorry, we're getting there. But in verse 31, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And so Peter, right? Astonished Peter, dismayed Peter in his mouthy arrogance and ignorance. And if you know anything about Peter, both apply, right? I'm sure it has nothing to... None of us can relate to that, I'm sure. Uh, but he dared in that mouthy arrogance and ignorance to rebuke the Lord. But Jesus in turn rebukes him in some very, very, very strong words. Chapter 8, verse 33. Listen, get behind me, Satan. For you are not thinking about God's concerns, but about human concerns. Now sit with that for a minute. Here's what happens next. Jesus told the disciples that he would go to Jerusalem to die. And they, he was fully aware, Jesus, right? Jesus was fully aware of the fate that awaited him. He knew that he would die a horrific, humiliating, and painful death. He knew what his father sent him to do. We also, though, have to remember that even though Jesus was God in the flesh, he was fully human, too. And so he faced temptation just like you and I face temptation. And he faced hunger or felt hunger the same way that you and I feel hunger. And the beating that he received on his back from Roman soldiers and a whip and nails that were driven through his hands and his feet hurt him as much as they would hurt you or me. He didn't look forward to the cross. But he knew that in order to fulfill God's will, he must endure it. He knew that adversity would also come for the disciples, right? Because this would be a difficult uh, thing for them to endure as well. So after telling them that he must go to Jerusalem and die, what does he do? He takes Peter, James, and John with him to a high mountain by themselves. And this is what he writes in Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them to, the high, to a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them. And his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, since they were terrified. A cloud appeared, overshadowing them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So, look, when I read this story, I ask myself the question, was this for? Right? Who was the transfiguration for? Was it for Jesus was it for Peter, James, and John? Was it for us? And I think the answer is yes. <laughs> All of the above, right? Jesus needed the transfiguration experience as he was preparing for an incredibly difficult road that he was facing. Peter, James, and John needed it too because they needed a glimpse of who Jesus really was. And today I would say that we need it and the truth of this story as well because it helps us to live as faithful disciples even in the face of adversity, even when we're walking through the mid-bars of life, right? And so Fred said last week, right, we know for certain that we're going to face adversity at some time in the future. Some of us are living it now. A life of following Jesus doesn't prevent that from happening. But what it does do is it assures us that we don't walk it alone. We don't face it alone. And so no matter how good your marriage is right now, you know that moment will come, right? When when there'll be some (laughs) off-roading. There'll be some rough spots along the way. Or no matter how how great things are going for you spiritually right now, no matter how close to God you feel right now, you know, if you've been walking with, with Christ for a while, that there's times when his presence isn't quite so intuitive. Right? When we struggle with sin, when we struggle with the will to obey. There's times when we struggle with doing the right thing when the right thing is hard. It's a fact of life. We all have times of adversity. And we've got to know that. And I would argue that we have to prepare for it. Right? So how do you do that? How do you do that? I think there's a lot in this story about how to prepare for adversity right here in the Transfiguration. And in the time that I've got left this morning with y'all, I'd like to go there. What does the transfiguration of Jesus teach us about preparing for hard times? And I would say the first thing that shows up in this text is there's a call to get alone with God. That's what they did, right? Jesus and his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, the text says went alone up the mountain to be with God. Now I get it. The Christian life is more than just about Jesus and me, right? But it's never less. It's never less. Page after page of scripture, we find God rebuking our post-enlightenment individualism from beginning to end. This is about community. This is, there's a corporate dynamic to our Christian life together. It's why we gather together like this, right? But even Jesus got alone sometimes. Jonathan Edwards, the Great American revivalist, preacher, and philosopher echoes what we learn from scriptures when he says this. One aspect of a Christ-enamored heart is a gnawing ache to get along with him. Hmm. So Jesus goes high up on this mountain, just himself and three of his closest disciples to spend time in the presence of God. I've known people in a crisis who drop to their knees very quickly and pray hard. I've also known people in a crisis who don't. And some maybe start to convince themselves that God must be mad at them or that they're getting somehow something they deserve. Or maybe they're just arrogant and they think, I can get through this. They're not desperate enough yet, right? But what I've learned in this is to remind myself that when adversity comes knocking, my first reaction has to be to get along with God. And I think yours is too. We have those times, right? Where God, this is a tough decision and I don't know what to do. I don't know what decision to make. Help me make the right decision. We have those seasons in life when we're struggling with the will to obey, right? So God, give me the strength to obey you. God, I'm tempted to take the easy route. I'm tempted to hit the easy button. Give me the strength to do the right thing now. That first defense in facing adversity is to get away from the, from the grind and spend time alone with God. The text here says that they went up on the mountain. And partway through verse 2, it says, He was transfigured in front of them. And his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. I love the detail. The disciples got a glimpse of who Jesus really was because right? they'd seen him. They'd been walking with him. They saw Jesus as a teacher, but now he's more than just a teacher. right? And they saw Jesus do a lot of healing too, but now he's more than just a healer. Jesus possessed the radiance of Almighty God. And two prophets from the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, come from the far reaches of eternity to have a conversation with him. The disciples got a glimpse of who Jesus really was. And in the coming days, they'd need it because they'd see him later arrested and they'd see They watch him viciously beaten in a public forum, stripped, mocked, and nailed to a cross. And they needed this glimpse. They needed to hang on to this glimpse as they struggled with their own fears, as they struggled with their own failures. I think the transfiguration was done for Jesus' sake too. Right? There's a sense in which he needed that transfiguration experience to strengthen him as he prepared to face a very lonely road to the cross. That time alone in God's presence to get a glimpse of the glory of God and to find strength in that. And you and I need it too. You and I need it too in the face of adversity. We need time alone with God to get a glimpse of his glory. How do you do it? How do you do it? I got a few ideas, but this is not a comprehensive list, folks. I think one of the ways we do that is by meditating on his presence, remembering that he's with us no matter what storms come our way, and turn to the promises of Scripture, right? Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, I will never leave you or abandon you. Words of Jesus that we find in Matthew 28, remember I am with you always, even to the end. So we get along with God and we remember his promises that we'll never face anything by ourselves, that he's with us. In addition to meditating on his presence, I think there's a call to remember to meditate on his power. And again, I could go to probably 100 different texts in the Bible, but one that comes to mind is in Psalms chapter 89, verse 13. You have a mighty arm. Your hand is powerful. Your right hand is lifted high. Right? So when we're feeling weak and when we're feeling helpless, for us to remember that God is not weak and God is not helpless. He's all-powerful and he's got the ability to do exactly what needs to be done. So meditating on his power and remembering who we're dealing with. right? And this one, stick with me because it's a tougher one. But it's meditating on his purpose in our life in the midst of adversity. Right, The adversity that we face is not meaningless. Jesus didn't go to the cross simply because the events of the world spun out of control. There was a purpose. There was a reason for his suffering. And I would submit to you this morning, as much as it might be hard for us to hear at the wrong time, there's a reason for ours too. That God's in the business of redeeming, because that's what he does, right? God's doing a work in your life, and storms are sometimes part of that. And if you don't want to believe me, then let's look what First Peter says. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor of the revelation of Christ. And so at the onset of the storm, right, we get alone with God, we get a glimpse of his glory, we meditate on his presence and his power and his purpose. We get along. Another thing, in addition to that, that I think comes right out of the text, right? I love it when the text has all the points for the message. <laughs> this isn't me. Listen. One word. Listen. So after we open our heart to him and we pour out before him and tell him all of the things that we're struggling with, we got to get to the point where we stop talking. And we listen so that we can get some perspective, his perspective on the situation. So Peter got a glimpse of the glory of God. And he says to Jesus there partway through verse 5, Rabbi, I love this, right? Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, i got to stop there for just a minute, right? Have you ever had one of those moments in your life when you uttered something foolish because you were anxious or just didn't know what to say? Right. I imagine that's how it was for Peter here. His tongue temporarily disconnected from his brain. He was kind of known for that. But think about in the context that it happened, right? In the face of one of the most extraordinary sights described anywhere in the Bible. I say one of, because there are some others too. I love how Mark, and actually Luke's gospel does this too, right? They apologize for Peter. Explaining that he was so terrified that he didn't know what he was saying, right? And so Peter, as was his custom, he gets a little bit ahead of God and he probably thought, you know, worshiping on this mountain's great. We kind of heard what's coming next, and but but this is a good spot to be. This is far more enjoyable than that walk to Jerusalem where we're gonna watch him die. So let's just stay here. <laughs> let's just stay here. Have you gone on spiritual retreats before? You know what that's all about? Right? Going up on those, we'll call them mountaintop experiences, those times that we wish we could just last forever, right? Out of range of our cell phones, not having to deal with the day to day stuff of our life, no bickering with one another, as close to heaven on earth as I've ever experienced. And you never want it to end. But here's the thing we're not called to live our lives in a state of perpetual retreatedness. We're called to live in the day-in, day-out grind of the real world. And so Peter's idea may have sounded really good, but he didn't have God's perspective on the situation. So what does God do but get his attention, right? A cloud, verse 7, a cloud appeared overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And then Matthew's gospel adds another layer of detail to that too. His version of the story adds, and when the disciples heard this, they fell face down and they were terrified. And yeah, they were, and you would be too, right? They just heard the audible voice of God, and if that wasn't enough, they heard God himself speak what Jesus has been telling them all along, so it was true, right, that Jesus would soon go to Jerusalem, that he'd meet his death, and that realization was sinking in, and of course they were overwhelmed with fear, right? Right after God tells Peter, James, and John to listen to Jesus, the very next thing that Jesus says to them, and again, it's the beauty of kind of going to some of the other gospel texts that tell the same story because there's layers of detail uh, that, that vary a little bit. But in Matthew 17, this added detail comes into this event. Jesus came up to them, right? They fell on their face with fear. And Jesus came up to them and said, Get up. Don't be afraid. Did you get that? Get up. Don't be afraid. What do you do when you face adversity? Honestly, I'll tell you what I do sometimes. Sometimes I cower, sometimes I hide, and sometimes I'm overcome with fear. And Jesus tells his disciples, and he tells you and me, get up. Don't be afraid. Have courage. What you're about to face is going to be tough, but you're not alone. I'm with you. And many times before we face a storm that we know is coming, what do we do? God, get me out of this, right? And his response is often, I won't get you out of this, but I'll get you through it get up, don't be afraid. And so when we take time to listen to God and we've got a chance to filter out all the excuses that we might want to make and all the escape routes that we might want to take and we have a chance to really listen, to be quiet, to be still, only then do we hear that gentle voice of encouragement where God says, get up, don't be afraid, you're not alone. So again, out of the text, how do we face adversity? Well, some of it, as we talked about, is is making sure that we get along with God and opening our heart to Him. Another part of it is, is to stop talking, right, and to open our ears and to listen. And then finally, I would say, again, a single word, wait. Wait. How unsatisfying, right? In my counseling sometimes with... Service members that are going through hardships. sometimes I just got to tell them, you know, the only way through this is time. Wait. Mark 9, verse 9. And they were coming down, as they were coming down from the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. That's interesting, isn't it? they just seen the glory of Christ. They just watched this metamorphosis happen before their very eyes, right? The Greek word where we find transfiguration they just witnessed jesus speaking to moses and elijah right (laughs) and then they were enveloped by this cloud and then they heard this audible voice from god and they were given orders by jesus to not tell anyone yeah right huh why I'm going to guess that they didn't fully understand what just happened. They didn't know what just happened on that mountain. They needed some time to think about it. I think part of why Jesus says, wait here until after the death and resurrection is because it's only after those things that that mountain experience would start to come together. Would start to make sense. We've heard Jesus say it before, but this time is a little different. It's the last time he says it in the Gospels, and Jesus also gives this added instruction that basically says, it's not forever that you have to be quiet. It's temporary. It's not permanent. And Jesus reminds them that while it's true ad- adversity is coming, that he would go to Jerusalem, that he would be killed. It's not the end of the story. There'll be resurrection. So Wait. Wait until then. So we face adversity, and the same is true for us. The story doesn't end with a storm, does it? The story doesn't end with defeat. The story ends in victory. Right? And so you may face trials and tribulations, but on the other side of adversity is resurrection. And our name is on it. And part of the preparation for adversity is to ready ourselves and to wait until victory comes. And so, church, God God wants each of us to experience Christ transfigured before our eyes, too. Right? Just, Just like it happened with Peter and James and John on the mountain that day, he wants us to develop a clear picture of who Jesus is, who he really is. He wants us to know Jesus personally. He wants us to know Jesus deeply. He wants us to know Jesus intimately. I love how Tom Wright puts it, or otherwise known as N.T. Wright, if you've read some of his books, right? He says, in the Christian life, we're taught to expect the unexpected. It will be incomprehensible, even just as the disciples found Jesus' command not to tell anyone until he had risen from the dead. But, and this is the important part, right? But if we discovered a faith with nothing unexpected or incomprehensible, nothing to shake us from our cozy, normal existence and assumptions, we could be fairly sure that it wasn't the real thing. So this is something that you don't get just from parking your backside in a seat on Sunday. I could follow you around all week long and tell you about Jesus, and that wouldn't be enough either. This is an experience that you have to have. You get that by walking closely with him. And it begins with a decision to be a follower, but it continues with that lifelong dedication of knowing him more completely in times of stillness, in times of solitude, in times of contemplation. So look, in our work, we get to reveal Jesus to the world, right? But it's in our stillness that he reveals himself to us. Are you making that time? We're going to face times of adversity this side of heaven. But if we're prepared, that battle is sure to be won. And so we prepare by that, that, again, that time getting alone with God and by listening to God and by waiting on Him. In the transfiguration of Jesus, we get a glimpse of Jesus Christ and His power and His glory. And that power is available to you too. No matter what kind of adversity we face.